Chapter 6 of A Group of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton. Chapter 6 Dorothea Dix, 1802 to 1887. Great women belong to history and to self-sacrifice. Lee Hunt Dorothea Dix has been called the most useful and distinguished woman America has yet produced. Let us follow the events of her life and decide for ourselves whether this statement is true. Dorothea Lynde Dix was born April 4, 1802, at Hampden, Maine. Her father, Joseph Dix, was a man of unstable character and of a most singular mental makeup. In fact, he was regarded as almost insane on religious questions. He wandered about from place to place, writing and publishing tracts, spending in this way the little money he had without regard to the needs of his family. His wife and children were required to assist in the stitching and pasting of the tracts, a tiresome work which brought them no return. At twelve years of age, Dorothea rebelled against this labor. She wished to attend school, but there was little chance for her to study while she lived with her father. So she ran away from Worcester, where the family then lived, and went to Boston, the home of her grandmother, Mrs. Dorothea Lynn Dix. Mrs. Dix received the girl as kindly as her nature would permit. But she was a stern woman with very strict ideas of training children, and every piece of work done for her had to be perfectly performed, or severe punishment followed. Once, when little Dorothea had failed to accomplish a task as well as her grandmother thought she should, she was compelled to spend a whole week alone without speaking to anyone. This sounds cruel, but Dorothea's grandmother wished to make the child careful and painstaking. Poor little Dorothea. She said in after years that she never knew childhood. But she submitted to her grandmother's sternness rather than return to her father and the wandering, useless life he led. She had always in mind the day when she would be able to support herself and help her younger brothers. So she studied diligently and, being clever, made great progress. When she was 14, she returned to Worcester where she opened a small school for young children. In order to look old enough for a teacher, she lengthened the skirts of her dresses and arranged her hair grown woman fashion. The school succeeded, for Dorothea, though always kind and gentle, was a strict disciplinarian. The year following, she returned to Boston and studied to fit herself for more advanced work in teaching. In 1821, when she was 19 years of age, she opened a day and boarding school in that city, in a house belonging to her grandmother. Here she received pupils from the best families in Boston and the neighboring towns, and was able to send for her brothers and educate them while supporting herself. Dorothea's sympathies, meanwhile, were drawn to the poor children around her, who had no means of obtaining an education because their parents could not afford to pay the tuition. She put the matter before her austere grandmother and begged for the use of a loft over the stable, 
for a schoolroom for these children. The Little Barn School was the beginning of a movement that grew and later resulted in the Warren Street Chapel. You may imagine how happy Dorothea Dix was now to be self-supporting and to be helping others to become so. She managed the two schools, had the care of her two brothers, and took entire charge of her grandmother's home. For Mrs. Dix had learned to admire and trust the granddaughter whom she had once found so careless. This amount of work would completely fill the lives of most people, yet Dorothea found time to prepare a textbook upon common things. Sixty editions of the book were printed and sold. It was followed by two others, Hymns for Children and Evening Hours. In order to do all this work, she arose early and sat up late into the night. Naturally, her health failed under such strain. After six years, she gave up her schools and took a position as governess in a family living at Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Here she lived much in the open air, and her great desire for universal knowledge led her to make a special study of botany and marine life. Her health failing again, she visited Philadelphia and then went south as far as Alexandria, Virginia, writing short stories the while to support herself. The winter of 1830 she spent in the West Indies with the family of Dr. Channing. There she at last regained her health. The following spring, Miss Dix returned to Boston and reopened her school in the old Dix homestead. Pupils flocked to her, and for five years the work flourished. Her influence over her pupils was wonderful. They thought her very beautiful, as indeed she was. Mrs. Livermore writes of her, Miss Dix was slight and delicate in appearance. She must have been beautiful in her youth, and was still very sweet-looking, with a soft voice graceful figure, and winning manners. In 1836, ill health obliged her to close her school once more. This time, she went to England. Though only 34, she had saved enough money to enable her to live in comfort without labor. Shortly after, her grandmother died, leaving her enough to carry out the plans for helping others, which had become a part of her life. She then returned from England, and made her home in Washington. In 1841, however, we find her again in Boston, and at this time her real-life work began. It happened that a minister well known to Miss Dix had charge of a Sunday school in the East Cambridge Jail. He needed a teacher to take charge of a class of 20 women, and asked Miss Dix if she could tell him of any suitable person. Miss Dix thought the matter over, and then said, I will take the class myself. Her friends objected because of her frail health, but having once arrived at a decision, Dorothea Dix never changed her mind. As one of her pupils said, fixed as fate, we considered her. The following Sunday, after the session was over, she went into the jail and talked with many of the prisoners. It seemed that they had many righteous grievances, one being that no heat of any kind was provided for their cells. When Miss Dix asked the keeper of the jail to heat the rooms, he replied that the prisoners did not need heat, and that besides, stoves would be unsafe. Though she begged him to do something to make the cells more comfortable, he refused. She then brought the case before the court in East Cambridge. The court granted her request, and heat was furnished the prisoners. 
In the East Cambridge jail, she saw many things too horrible to believe. The cells were dirty. The inmates crowded together in poorly ventilated quarters, the sane and insane often being placed in the same room. These conditions, and others too sad to mention, she made public through the newspapers and the pulpits. But she did not stop at this. Every jail and almshouse in Massachusetts was visited by her. She must see for herself how the unfortunate inmates were treated. For two years she traveled about, visiting these institutions and taking notes. Then she prepared her famous memorial to the legislature. In this memorial, Miss Dix said, I proceed, gentlemen, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons within this commonwealth, in cages, closets, cellars, stalls, pens, chained and naked, beaten with rods and lashed into obedience. Proofs were offered for all facts stated. The memorial was presented by Dr. S.G. Howe, husband of Julia Ward Howe. Dr. Howe was then a member of the legislature. The conditions thus made public shocked the entire community, so that after much discussion, a bill was passed enlarging the asylum at Worcester. A small beginning, yet the grand work of reform was started, and Miss Dix was grateful. She then turned her attention to other states, visiting the jails, almshouses, and insane asylums as far west as Illinois and as far south as Louisiana. In Rhode Island, she found the insane shockingly treated. At that time, there lived in Providence a very rich man named Butler. He had never been known to give anything to help the unfortunate, but Miss Dix decided to appeal to him. People smiled when they heard that she intended to call upon Mr. Butler and ask him for money. During the call, he talked of everything except the subject nearest Miss Dix's heart, talking against time, as they say, to prevent her from putting the vital question. At length, she said in a quiet but forceful manner, Mr. Butler, I wish you to hear what I have to say. I bring before you certain facts involving terrible suffering to your fellow creatures, suffering you can relieve. She then told him what she had seen. Mr. Butler heard her story to the end without interruption. Then he said, What do you want me to do? I want you to give $50,000 to enlarge the insane hospital in this city. Madam, I'll do it, was the reply. After three years of this sort of work, Miss Dix became an expert on the question of how an insane asylum should be built and managed. In New Jersey, she succeeded, after much hard work, in securing the passage of a bill establishing the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum and the money necessary to build it. This building was a model for the times. For 12 years, she went up and down through the United States in the interests of the suffering insane securing the enlargement of three asylums and the building of 13. In 1850, Miss Dix secured the passage of a bill giving 12 million acres of public lands for the benefit of the poor insane, the deaf and dumb, and the blind. Applause went up all over the country. Yet, strange to say, after the passage of the bill by both houses, President Franklin Pierce vetoed it. This was a severe blow to Miss Dix and she again went to Europe for a rest. But rest she could not. 
all the large European cities had abuses of this kind to be corrected, and she must work to help them. A most interesting story is told of her encounter with Pope Pius IX. In vain had she tried to get authority in Rome to enable her to do something to improve the horrible Italian prisons. She had even tried, but vainly, to get audience with the Pope. One day she saw his carriage, stopped it, and addressed him, willy-nilly, in Latin, as she knew no Italian. Her enterprise appears to have impressed the Pope favorably, for he gave her everything she asked for. In her own country, again, she extended her labors to the western states. Then the breaking out of the Civil War rendered such labors useless. But now there were the soldiers to help. Her active interest in them came about in the following way. Shortly after April 1861, she happened to be passing through Baltimore when the 6th Regiment of Massachusetts, on its way to Washington, was stoned by a vast mob, several men being killed. At once, Miss Dix knew what to do. She took the first train she could get for Washington and reported at the War Department for free service in the hospitals, where through Secretary Simon Cameron, she immediately received the appointment as Superintendent of Women Nurses. Here, truly, was an enormous piece of work for her. Among her duties were the selection and assignment of women nurses, the superintendents of the thousands of women already serving, the seeing that supplies were fairly distributed, and looking after the proper care of wounded soldiers. Her remarkable executive ability soon brought order and system out of confusion. It is said that she accepted no women who were under 30 years of age, and demanded that they be plain in dress and without beauty. Good health and good moral character were also, of course, requirements. Many of the surgeons and nurses disliked her. They said she was severe and that she would not listen to any advice nor take any suggestions. The real cause of her unpopularity, however, was that she demanded of all about her entire unselfishness and strict devotion to work. Very severe was she with careless nurses or rough surgeons. Two houses were rented by her to hold the supplies sent to her care, and still other houses were rented for convalescent soldiers or nurses who needed rest. She employed two secretaries, owned ambulances, and kept them busy, printed and distributed circulars, settled disputes in matters which concerned her nurses, took long journeys when necessary, and paid from her own private purse many expenses incurred. Everything she possessed, fortune, time, strength, she gave to her country in its time of need. During the four years of the war, Miss Dix never took a holiday. Often she had to be reminded of her meals, so interested was she in the work. At the close of the war, when the Honorable Edwin M. Stanton, then Secretary of War, asked her how the nation could best thank her for her services, she answered, I would like a flag. Two beautiful flags were given to her with a suitable inscription. These flags she bequeathed to Harvard College, and they now hang over the doors of Memorial Hall. The war over, Miss Dix again took up her work for the insane, and for 15 years more devoted herself to their welfare. In 1881, at the age of 79, she retired to the hospital she had been the means of building at Trenton, New Jersey, and here she was tenderly cared for until her death in 1887.
End of chapter 6